2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 is where we're going to start here in just a moment. Several years ago, I received a call from a man named Jim. This was several, several years ago. Uh, Jim uh, did not attend our church, but his extended family did. And so we kind of knew each other in that way. And he told me over the phone that he was very, very sick and that he was going to die soon. And he asked if I would do his funeral. And I said, well, of course, I'll, I'll do your funeral. And so the next day, I went to his house and we sat to talk. And uh, I needed to get to know him better. And we needed to do some planning. He wanted to talk about what his funeral was going to look like. Jim's body was failing, but his mind was incredibly sharp. His sense of humor was incredibly sharp. We just had this incredible time together as he shared stories and told me about his life. Uh, then the conversation shifted to his funeral and we began to talk about what it might look like, what sort of elements would he want there. And, and I asked him this question. I said, Jim, uh, if you could say something to your family on that day, what would you say? And he didn't hesitate. I told you I was sick. That was, <laughs> that was Jim's answer. <laughs> so when I picked myself up out of the floor, <laughs> he actually had really sweet things that he wanted his family to hear from him and to be encouraged by. Have you ever thought about what your final message might be to friends and family? If you were to go home today, sit down with a, a pen and paper, and write out a message to your loved ones, what would you say? I imagine those words would be filled with gravity. They'd be very weighty, very serious. As you're thinking about the people you love, you would want to be an encourager to them for sure. You would want to reaffirm your love for them. You might even give them some guidance for their future. Here's what life without me can look like and what it should look like. Here's the things you should pursue and do and the joy that you should have. And that's the kind of message we find here at the end of 2 Timothy. Paul, throughout the entirety of this letter, has a sense that his days are coming to a close. He knows that death is near. He's writing this letter from a Roman prison. He knows he's going to die soon, and it will not be from natural causes. And so this letter, from start to finish, has this weight to it as he encourages Timothy and prepares him for life without Paul. Timothy, for all the days the Lord has given you, which will be longer than my days, here's how you should live your life. Here are guidelines to take you into the future for whatever days the Lord has given you. It's wonderful encouragement to Timothy, and it's encouragement to us as well. These are Paul's final words to South Shore Baptist Church. And I think we relate really well to Timothy if we've ever felt adrift without direction, if we've ever faced uh, a trial, a crisis, and we weren't sure about how to respond, what comes next, what do we do. But when we've felt adrift in life, we find ourselves in the same boat as Timothy, and that's why Paul gives us these final words to his letter. The whole letter is meant to guide and anchor Timothy's life, but especially these last few verses are incredibly poignant and important for you and I. This passage of Scripture is for all of us, and it's going to give you some markers to live your life by. As you think about, what kind of life do I want to lead with the days the Lord has given me? 
what do I want to be said at my funeral about me? I'm not trying to be morbid. We're just dealing in reality. Do you know what does not get said at funerals? I've done a lot of funerals. Here's what's never been said. That guy had so many toys. Oh man, that woman worked 80 hours a week and we praise her for it. Oh, that dude was totally rotten through and through and we're glad he's gone. Those are not the things that people say. They don't talk about how many hours you work. They don't talk about the things you bought, the money you've accumulated, the, the, the flesh that you pursued. But the funerals that glorify Jesus Christ and exalt the Gospel talk about Christ-like living hearts that look like His, lives given for the sake of the Gospel. How do we get there? How do we live these days, whatever days the Lord has given us, in such a way as to maximize His glory, to make every day count, that we would get to the end of our life without any regrets, but joy and glory to give to God. My goal today is to call you to live for what matters. Even as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have all these competing loves, lowercase l, in our lives. How do I live for what matters? Paul gives us four guidelines for living the days the Lord has given to us. So I want you to follow along with me as I read First Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 5. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul, speaking to Timothy, says this, But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon, because Demas has deserted me, since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in the ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself, because he strongly opposed our words. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus has remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. So there's a lot happening in this passage. You would do well to spend more time with the end of 2 Timothy and the week ahead. 
But for our purposes this morning, I want to show you four ways you and I as followers of Jesus are to live our lives. What are we to live for? And if you take a note this morning, the first is this, live for the gospel. If I'm thinking about my days ahead, this day and every day to come, I want to live for the gospel in verses 5 through 8. Now in these verses, Paul gives some really powerful encouragement to Timothy. In the passages before this one, Paul spent a fair amount of time talking about the hard times ahead and the insane ways people will live without God. If you go back to the start of chapter 1, you read up through the start of chapter 4, Paul highlights what people do in the last days and, and, and what they live for and what they pursue in their flesh. It's a really dark portrait of the days to come. So in light of all that Oncoming chaos, Timothy. In light of all the wretchedness that is to come, verse 5, Paul turns his quill to Timothy with intentionality and he says, but as for you. Then he rattles off four bullet point commands really quick. Exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy, this is how you live regardless of what's going on in the world around you. These four commands in verse 5 are, are not situational. They, they, they aren't to just be pulled out and lived by, uh, determined, determined by what's going on around us. They are guidelines for every day of our life, regardless of what the world around us does. Christianity is not a reactionary faith. It's a convictional faith. These are the anchors that guide us and direct us every day of our lives. And so when we get to verse 5, we've got to ask some really challenging questions of ourselves. And Paul provides the words. Am I exercising self-control in everything? If you ride in traffic with me, you will know I need to grow in my sanctification in this area. Am I enduring hardship? Am I doing the work of an evangelist? Am I fulfilling my ministry? These commands are not things that are isolated only to Timothy because of his unique position as the leader of this church in Ephesus. These go to every believer. Every one of us are to exercise self-control, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill the ministry that God has given us to do. And from there, as Paul moves forward, verses 6 through 8, he erupts in these really beautiful word pictures. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Uh, There is uh, a lot of discussion about what exactly Paul means by this. What does it mean that he's being poured out as a drink offering? Multiple different explanations. Here's one that I like today. A drink offering in the Jewish sacrificial system was a secondary offering. It was a supplemental offering. It went alongside a greater offering. That greater offering would be a burnt offering. And so, if Paul is saying, I am being poured out like a drink offering, I am a secondary offering, a secondary sacrifice, what's the primary sacrifice? That's Christ on the cross. Paul's saying Christ gave His life 
for me. Now I live my life for Him. I've given my life to Christ in a practical day-by-day sense that my conversations, my thoughts, my living, all that I do would go to exalt Christ and make the Gospel known to the people around me. And towards that end, I've lived, I've faced these last days with no regrets. He says, the time for my departure is near. This is sailing language. He's He's about to leave this port and he's going to go to another one. Paul doesn't talk about death like it's something to be feared. Not at any point does he tremble when he talks about the end of his life and the beginning of eternal life in God's heavenly kingdom. He's not sick with this morbid fascination about death things. He just understands that the life we're saved to is greater and beyond this. That this is just a whisper of a life. No matter how many decades we have, it is short, it is quick, but eternity is glorious and beautiful and forever. And Paul can't wait to be there. His faith informs his view of his final days. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I love Timothy. I love my people. I love my churches. But I love the Lord and I want to be with Him for all eternity Paul's view of the end of his life is informed by this theology. So he's going to take a a trip. He's going to sail to another port. And then he, in verse 7, incorporates some athletic metaphors. He says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There's reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous, righteous judge, will give me on that day. He doesn't talk like a man about to die. Not in the way Hollywood portrays it. Not in the way that you and I think someone would. He talks, about a man, talks like a man who is filled with Christ to overflowing. He says, I'm going to receive this crown of righteousness. The crown he's talking about is not uh, a royal crown, but it's the equivalent of a gold medal given to the winner of a race. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. In this culture, the winners of these athletic events received a crown made out of uh, branches and leaves from the laurel tree, a crown of laurels. But Paul's not going to get a crown of laurels. He's going to get a crown of righteousness. But the beauty is not in the crown. The glory is not in the headgear. The glory is in the one who gives him the reward. Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, will give it to me on that day. Not only to me, but Timothy, to all those who have loved His appearing. This promise is held out to everyone who walks with Jesus Christ. We want to live our lives like this, brothers and sisters. We want to live our lives as drink offerings poured out for the sake of the Gospel. So that when we get to the end of our days, we can say with confidence, in the Lord. I've given everything I had to this. I've walked in faith. Not perfection. It's the grace of God that got me through day by day. I'm weak. I'm sinful. I fail. I mess up. But I've given my life for the cause of the Gospel. And if you're going to live your life for the sake of the Gospel, it starts by your life being saved by the Gospel. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you looked to Christ 
who died in your place and rose again and said, I trust in Him to save me, to forgive me of my sin. I turn from everything. I turn to Christ. I'm going to follow Him with everything I have. That's the start. That's the start of a life lived for the sake of the Gospel. That's the start of facing the end of your days with resolute confidence in Jesus Christ who died and rose again and carries you all the way to eternity. Do you know Christ is your Savior? You're probably a really good person. I mean, you came to church on a Sunday. You're probably a good neighbor, and you're probably a thrifty spender and a wise investor and charitable, and you're good to your pets. And there's a thousand things we could praise you for. The one that matters is this. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted Him and only Him to rescue you? Not your merits, not your resume, but Christ who died and rose again. And this is the day that your life can be transformed forever. That you could face the days the Lord has for you with confidence because Jesus Christ is your Savior. Today can be that day. Before you leave this building, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Savior, I'd love to talk with you. We've got many people. You may be here with a trusted friend who you could have this conversation with. But that's how we start to live our life for the sake of the gospel. We're accustomed to thinking that a life lived for the gospel is going to do extraordinary things. Dare greatly. Climb mountains. Go all over the place. But I think it just starts in our everyday lives where we are right now. It is a monumental thing if you are married to live for the gospel in your marriage so that you care about the well-being and the spiritual life of your spouse. And in this ordinary, somewhat mundane way, you pour your life out as a drink offering for the sake of the holiness of your spouse. And if you're single, if you're single, you, you live for the sake of the gospel. You live the same way with the same fullness of meaning and richness of experience to live your life in common, ordinary ways for the sake of the gospel. Not to satisfy a lingering loneliness with whoever says yes, but that your heart is tied to Jesus Christ with every step in every day. And with kids or without kids, and with grandkids or without, and in your job or in your neighborhood and in the little league and whatever it is that you do, we live for the sake of the gospel in beautifully ordinary and mundane ways. That's where the power that changes lives is expressed. So let's dare greatly in our commutes and in our cubicles and with our neighbors. Let the gospel come in a casserole dish. Would you live your life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me give you another guideline that Paul highlights for us in this passage. Another marker for living our lives by. First is the gospel. Second is the word. Live in the word. We're going to live for the gospel and we're going to live in the word. In verses 9 through 13, Paul gives Timothy some instructions and some updates on some people. He asks Timothy to come visit him very soon. We don't know for sure if that happened. Uh, it seems like perhaps it did, but we just don't know with, with confidence. Verse 10, he says, Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world. Demas is named in two other letters of Paul's as a faithful co-worker of his. But now, here at the end, we understand something's gone awry. Demas has walked away from the faith. He tells him about Christians whose 
gone to Galatia. Titus is in Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. This is Paul's only support in this Roman prison is Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. He says, bring Mark with you. He's useful for me in ministry. That's a really sweet sentence. You remember that Mark and Paul had a famous breaking up. They had a fight and they split ways. And the Lord used that break uh, to, to spread the Gospel and plant more in new churches. Uh, but now they're reconciled. Bring Mark with you. He's useful to me in ministry. That's a sweet sentence. Verse 12, I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. So Ephesus, remember, is where Timothy is. So Tychicus is on his way. And he says, verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls. Your Bible might say books, uh, especially the parchments. Um, so I'm interested most here in the names Luke and Mark and these scrolls and these parchments. Uh, only Luke is with Paul in this Roman prison. He's there to support and encourage him. Uh, and again, this is Luke, writer of the Gospel, writer of the book of Acts. And then he says, I want you to bring Mark to me. And so Mark, this is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. He's being brought in transport to be with Paul also. And so now we have in this one place... Uh, the writer of Luke and Acts, the writer of Mark, the writer of all of Paul's letters. We have half the Gospels, the book of Acts, and all the Pauline epistles gathered in one place, along with scrolls and parchments. Now, one pastor I listened to on this verse, he just hypothesized very carefully. He said, you have, you have two-thirds of the entire New Testament represented in these three men. Luke writes more of the New Testament than any other writer by word count. So you've got Luke and Mark and Paul and scrolls and parchments. Maybe, perhaps, a question for heaven, is this the place where the New Testament documents for the first time begin to come together in a canonized form? Maybe. I'm not going to state it with confidence it really does, but it's fun to think about. It's amazing to think about that these Bible writers are all together in this one place. What are the scrolls and the parchment that Paul asks for? I know what it's not. It's not Reader's Digest. It's not Western novels. It, it's it, The scrolls and the parchments that he would have with him most likely are Scripture writings. Scrolls could be possibly Old Testament writings, copies of Old Testament writings that Paul has. Those would have been really, really valuable and important. And then these other parchments, they could be letters that Paul has received. They could be letters that are unfinished that he was in the process of writing when he was arrested. It could be blank parchments that he was going to write letters on. And he wants all of those things with him. It, it, Paul doesn't do recreational reading, so to speak. The, the parchments and the scrolls, these are writings that have to do with the church and the spread of the gospel. And so here is Paul in a Roman prison cell, and he wants to see his friends, he wants to see people, but above all, he wants to see the Word in front of him. I am okay saying that what Paul's asking for is for Scripture to be brought to him, that he can put his nose in it and refresh his soul with it. And if Paul needed the Word of God in his imprisonment, then I believe that you and I need it in our day-to-day -day lives. 
Think of all that Paul has seen and done. He, he saw the resurrected Lord uh, in his epiphany moment on the road to Damascus. He's been transported to the third heaven. He's seen all these things, and still he needs, on this day, he needs the Word in front of him. He's got to get it into his brain. He's got to get it into his heart. And if Paul needs that, then so do I. Now, last week, I gave you a challenge. You remember this? I gave you a Bible study challenge last week. For this very reason, because we've got to get the Word in us. So I challenged you for four weeks uh, to do Bible study, separate from Bible reading, to set a goal, however many days a week. I'm going to do it two times, three times, four times. And I gave you a really simple method for uh, praying, reading the passage, answering the questions from 2 Timothy 3.16, and then uh, praying again. I, I wonder if you did that this week. If not the method I challenged you with, did you, did you study the Bible in some form this week? I've been really encouraged by the few comments I've gotten back. People have said, hey, I, uh, I haven't done, I haven't, I'm not a regular Bible studier, but I've, I'm doing this and it's been really good. Or I've got a regular method, but I tried this other method and man, it really get, put a new spin on things. It was really encouraging. It's been neat to hear those types of stories. And if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back to the website, check out last week's sermon, and then pick up with us in these next three weeks or the rest of your life, if you'd like, to study the Word, to eat it. We've got to be the kinds of people who read it, who memorize it, who think on it, who pray it. The Word of God has to be our feast every day. It's how we live our lives with the days the Lord has given us. We live for the sake of the gospel. We live in His Word. The third marker that guides our lives is this. We live by His strength. We live by the strength of the Lord. In verses 14 through 18, Paul takes us on an emotional trip. It starts in a dark place, it goes to a darker place, and it ends in a glory place. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. So here's a warning to Timothy about Alexander. You've met Alexander before. Do you remember this? First Timothy, at the end of chapter 1, he's named as an enemy of the gospel. Paul says Hymenaeus and Alexander are two people who have opposed the message of the gospel. And so remember what Paul said about them. I've handed them over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. If 1 Timothy is written, say about four years before 2 Timothy, Alexander is a long entrenched opponent of the gospel in Ephesus. There's conjecture maybe Alexander is the one who is responsible for Paul's imprisonment. Regardless, he's a bad dude. And he's a danger that Timothy has to look out for. That's a heavy verse. That's a dark place. But it gets a little darker. Verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. Here's the scene. Paul has been arrested, and he's having his first arraignment before the imperial court in Rome. It's the Supreme Court of Rome. It's been a journey getting there, but Paul has wanted to be there because he wants to proclaim the gospel in front of these power brokers, these Gentile leaders. He's not worried about getting out of jail. He's just worried about proclaiming Christ faithfully wherever he is. And on the day that he stood before that court, he stood there alone. 
No one was with him. Not one person to support him. Not one person to defend him. Not one person to just be a friend. He stood there in front of those people all alone. Verse 16 is, could be one of the saddest verses in the entire New Testament. In his moment of abandonment, Paul must have felt what Jesus felt when his disciples fled from him on the night of his arrest. You remember, they all deserted him, left him alone. He was arrested, beaten, nailed to the cross. And as he hung on the cross, what did Jesus pray for his opponents and those who put him there and those who had deserted him? He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus hangs on the cross utterly unoffendable. And so Paul echoes that when he prays for those who were not there for him. He says, may it not be counted against them. Here is Paul, unoffendable. Though he was deserted, he prays grace for them. And how is it that Paul could endure that hurt, uh, this lonely moment with such grace? Well, You see, here's the thing. Paul wasn't really alone, was he? Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the Word and all the Gentiles might hear it. The book of Acts tells us about two other occasions where the Lord appeared to Paul in the midst of crisis to encourage him and to strengthen him. And here again, we see Paul emboldened by the manifest presence of Jesus Christ. And with that strength, he declared the gospel boldly without fear of his life or fear of what would come next in front of these leaders of Gentiles, leaders of Rome. And as Paul tells the story, he gets worked up. He, get, he, he again steps into a place where just praise erupts from him and he can't stop. I, I think if we had a volume meter in this letter, this is where the volume goes up to 11. And he says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Literally, or figuratively, it doesn't matter. But he was saved from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When Paul thinks about the Lord standing with him when no one else did, he knows he did not lack anything. He had everything he needed in the omnipotent Christ by his side. And he doesn't think about that moment with sadness and sorrow or it would have been so sweet if Luke had been there to hold my hand. The Lord stood by my side. Do you have a testimony like that? Do you have faith that sees Christ in your crisis? That in these moments when life is utter chaos, you know the Lord is by my side. I have all that I need in Him. He will give me strength to live for the gospel. I've feasted on His word. I know His promises. And I live this day in His strength. How do you do that? Living in the strength of the Lord is walking by faith and not by sight. It has nothing to do with your muscles. It has everything to do with your trust in Jesus Christ. When He is our strength, then we're truly strong. Then we can endure all things. Then we're rescued from the lion's mouth and we're ushered safely into His heavenly kingdom to sing praise and glory to Him forevermore. So let us live our days for the gospel. And let us live in the Word. And let us live by the Lord's strength. And finally, one last marker to guide our lives. Let us live with the church. 
When I say church, I do not mean brick and mortar. I do not mean an address. I mean the people of Christ, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Here at the end of the letter, Paul begins to name people that he cares about deeply. And, and look, this is not wasted space. You know, if, if we were doing our read through the Bible in a year, we'd get to the end of Paul's letters and we just start to rattle off the names and we get lost in the dribble and then we just move on to what's next. You've got to pump the brakes when you get to these names because they're real people and they're really important. Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila. Prisca and Aquila are wife and husband. Prisca is her formal name. Her more familiar name is Priscilla. Elizabeth is a formal name. Lizzie is a familiar name. Prisca is formal. Priscilla is familiar. And Priscilla and Aquila, wife and husband, were big-time supporters of Paul. They met in Corinth. They traveled and did ministry with him. They went to Ephesus with him, and they remain in Ephesus. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila. And he says, greet the household of Onesiphorus. We met Onesiphorus earlier in this very letter. Back in chapter 1, Paul talks about the way Onesiphorus sought him out. He's from Ephesus, but he was in Rome, and he looked for Paul until he found him, and he ministered to him, and Paul says, blessings on his household. It takes real courage to walk up to the Roman guards and say, excuse me, could you tell me where Paul the prisoner is? blessings on his household, and he says, you know how he ministered in Ephesus. As I read these names, I, I was encouraged by this thought that although Timothy was opposed in Ephesus by Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus, and others, he was supported by high-octane brothers and sisters, Prisca, Aquila, Onesiphorus, and many others who were at his side supporting him, contending for the gospel in Ephesus. He didn't do this alone. Paul talks about Erastus. Erastus is mentioned in Romans 16. He travels with Timothy to do some missionary work. He talks about Trophimus. Trophimus is from Ephesus. He's mentioned in Acts 20 and 21, and he went with Paul on his third missionary journey, quite, traveled quite extensively uh, with Paul. Erastus and Trophimus are faithful gospel servants. And then Paul names people that we don't know. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and other nameless brothers and sisters who are believers in Rome. Paul's preoccupied with telling Timothy and the Ephesian church about people they know who are with him in ministry and who are thinking about him. He, Paul is incessantly trying to connect these people together. Why? Because they need each other to grow in the Lord and to endure through suffering and hardship. Throughout the New Testament, we're given instructions for how we are to treat one another, how Christian brothers and sisters are to treat one another. We are not spectators who just show up to the same room. We are brothers and sisters in a faith family. Uh, one exercise we do in the membership class is we will take a morning and we will read all 59 of the one another's in the New Testament. And we do that exercise to remind ourselves of who we are to be in membership, in covenant with one another. I'm not going to read all 59 of those right now, but let me give you just a few that help color the way we are to live together as a church. Love one another. Forgive one another. 
Accept one another. Bear with one another. Be devoted to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Share with one another. Serve one another. Build up one another. Carry one another's burdens. Encourage one another daily. Comfort one another. Instruct one another. Admonish one another. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Submit to one another. We can go on and on as the New Testament calls us start to finish together as a body of believers. God is not a problem solver. He is a people maker. And He remakes us through our relationships with our Christian brothers and sisters. You need the church. You don't need a building. You need the body. You need the church to give your life for all the days the Lord has given you to celebrate, to pray, to encourage, to invest in, to love the people that the Lord has given you to worship with. Paul's given us really profound guidance this morning. Not that it's not profound in any other way, but these are heavy matters. So how are we to live our lives? Paul's last words to us. What are the markers God has given us to live our lives by? The gospel, His word, His strength, and His church. One day, like Paul, you might sit down to write some letters to the people you love. And you might even choose to borrow some words from Paul and tell them this. The Lord has rescued me from every evil work and has brought me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank You for Paul's words to us. Help us to live our lives as we face a certain finish line. Help us to live our lives for the sake of the gospel planted in Your Word by Your strength and with our brothers and sisters. You have given these to us to give us strength, to help us, to move us forward, to encourage us, and we need all of that. We need it all today. Thank You for saving us from our sin. Thank You for saving us to holiness and to glory and to a good work. Help us to live sober-minded that we think about how we're living this day. That we would not lose any opportunity to make You known. Lord, help us to live lives that matter. According to what You have said matters most. Give us this courage, the strength to turn away from lesser loves and to live our lives in a way that brings You honor and glory. And let us do it in the quiet places, in the boring places, in the mundane places, not for headlines and accolades, but only for the eyes of our Savior who will reward us on that day. Thank you that we're saved by grace, we're held by grace, and that we're called to live lives of grace among those around us. And build us up as a church that we would love one another and care for one another in ways that reflect uh, our ownership by our crucified Savior. Lord God, we love you. Thank you for Second Timothy. Thank you for Paul's words today. 
Thank you for markers to live our lives by. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.